0: Our quest
1: for effective living: How we cope in social space—a window to a new science—and the author is Fred Katz. And Fred joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Fred.
2: Hi, Steve. I'm very happy to be with you and to be able to talk about my children, my books. Very
1: good. Your children? Yes, you've you've uh, given birth to seven books, and this is the third about the Holocaust. I want to read what you've written to give everyone a general idea of what we're going to be talking about. You say physicists study physical space, geneticists study biological space. This book studies social space. What is social space? It is the transaction between us and our surroundings, also, you say science is more than observation, what exists in nature. Science is adventure of the mind. It took many creative leaps of the mind to produce science as sophisticated as modern physics and genetic biology. This book offers creative leaps to help us understand the social space in which we live our lives. Read this book and join the adventure. So, Your background, your history is an an incredible adventure. Tell us a little bit of, uh, of that and what happened to your parents and what happened to you many, many years ago, Fred.
2: Well, my earliest years were I was born in a small village in southern Germany in Bavaria, a village called Oberlauringen. And it was also the early period of the Nazi regime, of Hitler coming to power, and there was huge discrimination against Jews. And the actual the Holocaust, the extermination of Jews, happened much later, but built up to that was the daily uh, horrors of life. I remember being beaten up, going to and from school, eventually then, of course, Jewish children were not allowed to go to school anymore. Anyway, I finally managed to leave Germany through a rescue operation that was organized in England called the Kinder transport and I was sent to England and uh, spent the next eight years in England and then came to the United States. My parents and my brother were not so lucky and were not able to leave and Eventually, after working in factories, serving in the United States Army, eventually I became a sociology professor. And I woke up to the notion that it isn't good enough to just remember what happened. Just remembering horrors is important as part of one's history and one's uh, commitment to one's loved ones. But it doesn't prevent new horrors. We hear the mantra, we must remember so it won't happen again. Well, I don't believe that. Uh, Horrors are happening again. Genocides have happened many times since the Nazi one. So I woke up to the notion that as a professional sociologist, I needed, or we needed to do different things than merely retelling stories about horrors. We needed to come up with explanations that give us a set, uh, insight into how it was that ordinary people, decent people, people like ourselves, were recruited to do terrible things. So it's not a matter of looking for monsters it's it's a matter of looking at entirely decent people like ourselves and seeing. How is it that ordinary people could be and were recruited to become big-time contributors to horrors? This is the challenge I took up in my first two books about these issues. So one book was called Ordinary People and Extraordinary Evil, and the other one is called Confronting Evil, trying to come up with a way of understanding how such horrors could happen amid civilized people like ourselves. So that was my first step. The second step is what I'm doing now is based on the notion I feel that even that is not good enough, that the behavioral sciences, sociology in particular, have been very conspicuous failures when it comes to the, the real horrors that have happened in our lives, the genocides that keep happening, that we've basically failed. And my response to that is we lack, we lack basic science that gives us can give us tools to come up with some real effective answers to what's happening in the world. And that is sort of the, the motivation, the starting point for this book. It's an attempt to jumpstart a basic science, a better basic science. Uh, So what do I mean by basic science? Well, uh, let's say in, in genetic biology, DNA is basic science. It is not science about cancer or about illness, but it may give us the answer to preventing cancer. So that the and similarly, I would hope that jump starting basic science in sociology and psychology, I'm helping to contribute answers to horrors in the future. So now, that's my mission.
1: Now, you want us to help you want to help us understand this phenomenon called social space. Now, yeah. how does this social space? Uh, I guess it can change us. It can it can develop us into something we don't even want to become if if we're not careful.
2: Well, I want us to get understanding how the, what I'm calling basic space works, and that this can give us the tools for getting better control over our lives, such as preventing genocides. But it does not directly at this point. that I'm not trying to prevent genocide at this point I'm trying to do the preliminary work of creating the basic science that can make it possible
1: well your book is broken down into four parts yes let's talk about uh, just briefly a little bit about each part the first part is called the second path phenomenon how we manage the unmentionables in our daily life what are the unmentionables
2: in our daily life, let's say when we're at work, we present ourselves as being reasonably competent, that, oh, know what I'm doing, and so on. And yet, in our work, there may be, it's very likely that there are things we are uncomfortable about, knowing about, angry about, fearful about, that we cannot express in that context. Now, ordinarily, We might take those feelings home with us and dump them on our spouse, but more likely we tend to shunt them off into a siding, what I'm calling the second path. It's sort of a storage, a safe storage place where we store things that are unmentionable in our daily life. Sometimes, however, this storage place explodes and creates all kinds of difficulties. Now, if you'd like, I can mention, I would like to really to give you a a concrete example of this, of bringing this down to earth.
1: Okay, go ahead.
2: Later on, I'll go into the other three, but let me give you an example about the case of Walter Cronkite, the very famous and highly respected former CBS news anchor, whom people in our generation certainly venerate to this day yeah
1: one time he was the most trusted man in america i think
2: yes well some years ago i heard an interview of walter cronkite on the occasion of his 80th birthday in that interview mr cronkite came through totally different from the walter cronkite we knew in the past We knew the strong, unemotional, sober, assured person, the one we all trusted, a rock on whom we would rely, and did rely, and still rely, to tell us what was going on in the world. But now, during that interview on his 80th birthday, he came through as a painfully sad, as shaken, as a pitiful person. What was all this about? It turns out that the current people in the CBS newsroom, where, where he used to work, when they had occasional celebrations, they did not invite him to their parties. These people, so much smaller than Walter Cronkite, this giant, these people had him feel terribly diminished when they did not honor him by inviting him. Now, why did this upset him so terribly, so completely? I don't know whether it would have upset him so terribly if it had happened earlier during the height of his career. But I do know that now, during that interview, we were given access to the unmentionables in his present situation, the sort of things that would ordinarily be hidden from public view in the form of a first pass where he was the self-assured, poised person. Now, however, we were shown his second path, where the unmentionables were in full control, in full view, allowing us to see his personal and very private unmentionables, his fears, his apprehensions, and so on. Well, from what I know about strong and famous people, uh, Winston Churchill and Albert Einstein, they too had their second paths, where their, unmen- their unmentionables held sway. We just did not know about them, about that space in their life being it was, was hidden from the public. In the book, I explore the case of unmentionables, fear, uncertainty, being thoroughly shaken. In the case of high army officers, whom we ordinarily think of as extremely poised and self-assured, And I look at the case of several Holocaust survivors who became highly successful writers after they survived, but all of whom committed suicide at the height of their success. And uh, in addition to these kinds of instances, I'm also pointing out that the second path can contain some of our most noble and decent impulses. Well, so much then about the second path, it sort of illustrates what what I'm trying to bring out right, about Fred. this one dimension.
1: We, we have about three minutes left. This interview is going by much too quickly, and yet you have too much to teach us in this short period yeah. of time. That's why it's so important for people to buy your book. Uh, yeah. I'll just mention the other three uh, phenomenons. You have the closed world phenomenon. The, uh,
2: and, yes. the, and then so the one is about the role of morality, what I'm calling the closed okay. world phenomenon.
1: And then the access. Another to, one
2: is. Go ahead. Is the links in our lives that is long before the um, the internet and Facebook and and. Uh, Social networks long before that, we've been linked we are connected to each other simply by the use of language and symbols. How the links work is another feature and finally the the other uh, section is transcendence, how we uh, transcend horrors in our lives. You also uh, the,
1: yes. I'm sorry, but you also have, I want to make sure we talk about this addendum. You also have this, uh, addendum in your book, applying this book's vision to understanding and treating post-traumatic stress syndrome yes. from Iraq yes. war veterans. So you're trying to reach yes. out to them and try to help them yes. as well.
2: Yes. Yes. And, and trying to apply this, but also to, to various forms of extremism, uh, namely, uh, if extremist groups get hold of nuclear weapons, what is it in their mi- mindset that might feel to them that they are fully justified using them? These are the kinds of issues I do address.
1: Well, clarifying the nature of spo- uh, social space, you say, is a personal, urgent Dream. It is neither an intellectual exercise nor a game nor a, a way to assuage uh, uh, my survival guilt because my parents and my brother did not survive while I did. I believe clarifying the social space in which we live can be a lifeline for our human species. So you are tackling, obviously, a bottom line thinking and behavior and it's more than most of us can get our minds around, but you do it in a way that helps us to understand much more about the world in which we live. Thank you so much, Fred. How do well, we get you?
2: Thank sh- you, Steve, H- how for do- giving me a chance to talk about this and uh, having people become engaged in, in this adventure.
1: How do we get your book, Fred?
2: You can order it through Author House. But it is also available on Amazon and through the regular bookstores. And in a few days it's going to be available as an e-reader. But it's also available in hardback, softback from Author House.
1: Well, thank you, Fred. I'm sorry we have run out of time. It's, uh, it's a lot of uh, material here to absorb, but we appreciate you sharing a bit of this and helping us to see how important it would be for us to learn more. So, thank you, Fred, very much for being on Author Talk.
2: Thank you, Steve, and I really appreciate being with you and your audience, and I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you.
1: That was Fred Katz. He is the author of his book Our Quest for Effective Living: How We Cope in Social Space, A Window to a New Science.
0: You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. Hey, you live in the dream like Nina and Cindy? Smile. Were you shocked by the Chuck E. Cheese calamities, diaper dilemmas, and major mom minivan mishaps? Then get ready to share it with Living the Dream Moms with Nina Fry and Cindy Schmitzer Thursday mornings at 10, 9 a.m. Central on Togenet. And as Nina and Cindy say, if you're thinking it, we're saying it. It's your chance to discuss, share, and learn from two moms who have been there, done that, and yes, they have the t-shirts. And they're for sale at ltdchix.com. Living the Dream Moms is all about all things moms have to deal with daily. Nina and Cindy are two ordinary frazzled moms who admit when they need help and do their best to research and discuss topics that are not always talked about. Living the dream moms are just two real women who are discussing the trials and tribulations and triumphs of everyday mom lives. You are not alone. It's Living the Dream Moms with Nina Fry and Cindy Schmitzer. Thursday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. What's your story? Are you living it? Well, you could be. It's What's Your Story with Hilary Bilbrey. Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Her passion is helping others discover, create, and live their personal brands. Yep, you heard me. You have a brand. No different than Coke, Pepsi, or Nike. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing brand. You're not a logo. You're not a tagline. The choices you make become the path you take. This is your brand. Now, live your story. Your brand is not just what you say it is. It's also what others say it is. So what are you communicating? And how can you create an authentic brand? We'll take on these challenges with What's Your Story? Every week, Hillary will feature teens, moms, and organizations that are learning and living their story. Now her passion is to help others discover, create, and live their personal brands. To find out more, go to inspiredbyfamily.com. It's What's Your Story with Hillary Bilbury, Friday mornings at 10 Eastern, 9 a.m. Central on Toginet.com. Welcome back to Author Talk. Brought to you by Author House. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The
1: title of the book, Noah, First Time Boater Archer Philosopher, a Not What You Think book. And the author is Viggo Hansen. And Viggo joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Viggo. Hi. Good to have you with us now. This is a very different book. Uh, people will understand uh, different probably is not the appropriate word. But w- these are words that it is, as you have described your book whimsical, nonsensical, metaphorical. The big spoof. <laughs> so uh, we're gonna sh- we're gonna show everybody and kind of tie this all together so everybody understands how Noah plays a part in this. I want to read just a couple things you've written as well, just to give people a feel for your writing and your thinking. Uh, Where we know you think, we're not sure why you think the way you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a fair statement. There you go. Here's one. A bit of thinking that you have written for us to uh, ponder. Every sailor and wannabe sailor, whether they know it or not, is in direct contact with a personal god or gods, however many there may be. What we sailors fail to appreciate is that the gods are constantly trying to get in touch with us, but we ignore their messages since we are either too busy sailing or drinking beer. (laughs) keep this thought firmly in mind next time you untie your dock lines now tell us why you decided to take sailing which you love to do you live down in san diego and and all of a sudden noah becomes part of this adventure with with you publishing your book
3: well thank you and um <laughs> how does one think is very difficult to uh to determine. But I will say this, there is a message here intended to be, that um our world is fraught with a lot of wars, really bad ones. And going to college in forty seven, uh, there were a lot of returning vets who were and uh, you know, maimed and so on and those who didn't make it, uh, they were always questioning uh, why could things like the Holocaust and these enormous wars happen. And so my, the background for this thing is uh, a little bit anti-existing gods. And uh I'll get to that in a moment. But in the meantime, to make it humorous so people will read it and think about it, I decided to pick on Noah, who uh, undoubtedly, uh, the way I think it happened, uh, God showed up in his tent one morning and said, uh, <laughs> I'm going to drown everybody, but you two, uh, you and your wife Sarah, are going to be spared uh, along with a bunch of animals that you will select. Well, then, as they get ready to go on the cruise, uh, all the little uh, daily kind of irritants that happen, uh, I try to make fun of that. In other words, I'm trying to make fun of uh, the whole Noah story, which I know some people take very seriously, and if you read King Jim, you're probably uh, going to be of that persuasion and that's fine but the big issue is how can we as human beings learn to enjoy each other's company even though we have different backgrounds and uh, instead of uh, slaying and slewing as uh, was happening uh, before noah so god got upset and decided to uh, start all over again and boating obviously is a good uh, metaphor it goes back a long time in history Um, Probably when we crawled out of the swamp and began uh, <laughs> living on land, we decided, hey, it's not bad to be back on the water. And so since we couldn't breathe underwater and all that, we started building boats. And uh, in the sailing business, someone buys a new boat. Everybody at the club, of course, hey, first-time boater, uh, you know, the drinks are on you and all of that. So first-time boater is something that's kicked around uh, with sailors a lot, and that's why I use that. Will you say, before
1: we embark, please, dear readers, understand that in order for me to properly share this magnificent revelation with you, many minor liberties were granted me, both in modern and oldie English usage and facts. Noah's story flips between a long time ago and today. Actually, there are many similarities, as you will see. Furthermore, my godly revelations were often fuzzy in detail. Why were they so fuzzy? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Yeah. Well, when you get these uh, revelations uh, late at night or uh, when you're driving on the freeway or whatever, you don't really know where they're coming from. But uh, being somewhat uh, spiritual, I have a hunch, and this is now uh, kind of backed up with a little bit of physics. We know that about 80% of what's going on in the universe, we don't know what it is. We know it affects us. And um, I have a hunch there's a uh, force similar to gravity and electricity that, you know, we really can't say what it is. We know the outcome of it. We know when things are pulled together and so on. Uh But my guess is that there are dimensions to this universe uh, that we haven't even begun to explore because we're, too busy doing other things. Uh, Frankly, if you want to read a great book, uh, I always recommend it to my math students. It's called Flatland by a guy by the name of Abbott. And he talks about if you're a point living on a line, you can only go in one direction. If you're a point living in a plane, you can go in two. If you're a point in space, then you can go three. And then, of course, the next thing would be, uh, the next dimension would be time. And if you had control of time, you could go back and forth in history and so on. Well, who knows? There could be many more dimensions out there. As a matter of fact, mathematics can handle many dimensions in their equations. So my feeling, and this is a little more serious in the book, is that we are perhaps uh, too narrowly focusing on the kind of physical things we can see and do, and there may be lots of stuff going on around us that we have not bothered to pay attention to. And uh, we've been diverted by uh, killing each other in the name of gods. Um, you know, your God wants me to kill you and so on. This is really ludicrous in my humble opinion. And uh, I, I think there's such infrastructure built around this that um, it has taken us down a kind of dark road. And what we need to get back is to uh, humor laugh at one another's problems. Uh, I'm Danish, and the Danes are often voted as the happiest people on the planet simply because they don't uh, have much, they don't expect to get much, and so they've sort of decided to enjoy what they got. Now, that translates into all kinds of things uh, regarding taxes and longevity and what have you. But uh, this whole thing with our... Nuclear weapon stockpiles are polluting the planet, uh, overconsumption and waste and so on. Uh, you gotta ask, why are we doing this? And, uh, um, I think religion has an incredible role to play here, but I don't think they're playing their cards the way they should be. So, if we want to start all over again, <laughs> let's start, uh, demystifying stories like Noah, obviously, uh, um, <laughs> drowning the whole planet is hardly uh so here's where god becomes um uh, in the in the book i have god uh, being a little bit mathophobic he's uh, not really comfortable with math and as a result uh his drowning scheme didn't get rid of everybody because he miscalculated the amount of water it would take and so on and so on
1: now you have besides god almighty and his universe in your unabridged reconstructed saga as you call it based on personal revelation uh you also have in his intensely logical wife sarah now this is noah's wife sarah why do you call
3: her intensely logical because she takes on god and noah um in the opening uh, part when god visits uh, noah and sarah uh, the wind is blowing and there's dust everywhere and so some comments are made about a dusty tent and all of that. Well, then, uh, Sarah comes up and, uh, a little later on says, you and God, that's her husband Noah and God, your solution to a dusty tent problem is to flood the whole bloody area. And so, Sarah constantly comes back to that. When they have to billet the, all the animals and the different cages and so on, uh, they obviously, uh, have some problems. For one thing, the, uh, meat eaters, the carnivores, they want to devour other carnivores because they need red meat. So in order to solve that problem, they come up with, uh, thanks to Sarah, That um, they'll brew uh, beer, and that beer is made from rutabaggies, which come from a little town called Askov in Minnesota, and then the straw and hay they have on, on the ark. So, uh, by keeping the carnivores kind of in a, uh, semi-drunken state, uh, they love one another and they're peaceful and everything goes well. At any rate, every time a, an incident happens on the cruise, for example, they get bored, so Sarah comes up with ways of entertaining them. And, uh, you know, this has got to be a real problem. You got all these animals slithering, crawling, flying on a boat. Uh, how to keep them occupied and keep them fed and keep them from getting on each other's nerves, so to speak. Uh, my guess is it's very analogous to a modern cruise boat, which I've never been on. But, uh, you know, you see the ads, they got all these things, distractions uh, for you to do as opposed to appreciating the fact you're sailing on a big body of water. So at any rate, Sarah very logically solves these problems.
1: Now, you also have some help. Uh, Noah has help from Falk. Tell us about Falk.
3: Well, um, what happened early on is when God confided in Noah that he was going to drown everybody, uh, that evening Noah goes to his neighbor Mustafa and uh, blabs the whole story to Mustafa. Well, part of the, uh, instructions that God had given Noah and Sarah was that they're going to have to find, uh, really young, uh, nubile, uh, pairs of animals to, uh, repopulate the planet when, after the big drown. So, Noah goes over to the neighbor Mustapha who has this falcon. And so Mustapha decides he's going to try to, or wants to know how, how are you going to find out what sex my, uh, my falcon is? So Noah grabs the falcon and <laughs> starts peeking around in different areas and the falcon gets really upset and hacks out one of Noah's eyes and scratches him pretty badly. At any rate, this then ends up in uh, Noah losing an eye and looking like a pirate uh, swashbuckler. Uh, and so as uh, they're taking off now I'm jumping ahead because there's light in between here. But anyway, now they're cruising away, and uh, they've just sort of left land, uh, water sinking and drowning everybody. Here comes this falcon back from somewhere. He hasn't drowned yet. So he comes flying back and says, uh, he sits on the helm there, and says, uh, I'm going to be your first mate. And, of course, Noah has real problems with that. But uh they work it out and then the problem will be to get Sarah to accept uh this falcon as being a first mate. Whereas well, she thinks she's the first mate. So there's a little dust up on that later on and uh but the falcon turns out to be um uh, another philosopher kind of thing because as they all float along, bob along on this watery uh, desert, they talk about uh, the universe, they watch the stars, and they wonder whether uh, God is ever going to come back to them, will there ever be any land. And So they get into some philosophical discussions on the nature of life and the universe and so on. But uh, then he also has a little hummingbird, and he's called Hummy. So you have two birds, Sarah, Noah, and God and his goddess, uh, and those six, they make up the cast. And
1: this is, sounds like, just the beginning, because you, do you have a sequel?
3: Yeah, uh, at the end of this, when they uh, land, uh, everybody uh, kind of reverts back to where they were. Uh, and the goddess opens up a shop, and uh, Sarah opens up something, and Noah and God, they, they uh, they're sitting around what to do. Guy's a little disturbed that everything seems to be reverting back to uh again what they were doing before uh the big ground so um God decides, well, I'm going to take a whole new approach. I tried the big kaboom, the big bang. That didn't work all that well. I tried, uh, you know, scaring people by telling them there's a hell that they're going to go to if they don't behave. That didn't work. And uh, now I tried this drowning. That doesn't seem to be working too well either. So he decides the next um, big push is going to be into the area of humor and uh, try to get people to laugh at things as opposed to be serious about them. So he's going to uh, open uh, something uh, I call the Celestial Bar and Grill, and at the Celestial Bar and Grill there will be all kinds of gods and sailors and wannabe sailors and anyone else who wants to come there. And they're going to have um, discussions on the nature of uh, their belief systems. Uh, so you'll have Buddha and uh, Jesus and uh, people like that uh, talking about the nature of the universe. And out of that, uh, I'm trying to distill a whole lot of humor, but it's tough uh, to come up with that. At any rate, the idea will be that they will begin, we will begin as... uh occupants of a universe that we don't understand very well appreciating one another and enjoying each other's company as opposed to the uh, slaughtering that tends to go on
1: well i'm not sure at the conclusion of talking about this book that you have published noah that we understand how you think any better than we did at the beginning (laughs) 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 but we know you think and you have got some really interesting ideas That everybody has got to ponder. So, whimsical, nonsensical, metaphorical, the big spoof. Well, Viggo, tell us how to get your book. Noah, first-time boater, archer, philosopher, a
3: not-what-you-think book. How do we get it? You can go to authorhouse.com, and you can also go to amazon.com, and in there they'll give you a list of how you can get it. Uh, It's also available, I think, on Kindle and electronic books and uh, so on. Uh yeah at any rate I would like to leave one little message with your listeners and that is we've got to start entering into a humorous phase in in our planet. Uh things are really in bad shape but um as the Danes do they tend to make jokes about it laugh at themselves and laugh at the way they think. Um, And let's face it, most of us don't know how we think. I surely don't. And having worked with students for some 40 years, (laughs) I know thousands of them don't think very well either, (laughs) at least by my standards. Uh, But everybody can enjoy a joke. Everybody likes to laugh. And when you laugh, you you don't get upset with each other. You just enjoy it. So that's the message. And I tried to do it in a humorous way. And um, that's, that's about it. Well, Vigo, thank um, you for being on Author Talk. We
1: really appreciate your very unique view of Noah. <laughs> thank you, sir. That was Vigo Hansen. He is the author of his book, Noah, First Time Boater Archer Philosopher, a not what you think
0: book. You're listening to Author Talk. We'll be back right after these messages. If you're not doing what you love, you're wasting your time. So let's rock your genius with Amber Singleton Revere. Join Amber Friday evenings at 8 7 Central, part of the Her Insight Network on TogiNet.com. Rock Your Genius is about helping you discover and rock your own unique genius. By doing so, you'll find greater contentment and success. Through inspiration and conversations with other entrepreneurs and business owners from around the world, we'll show you how to discover what it takes to create a life in business by design rather than default. Check out Amber's websites and businesses at upstartsmart.com and givebackproject.com. And of course... RockYourGenius.com. Her main mission in business is helping entrepreneurs and small business owners learn to survive and thrive through their work. And it all starts with being the truest and best version of yourself, and then allowing that to shine through your business. So jump in. It's time to Rock Your Genius with Amber singleton Revere Friday evenings at 8, 7 Central, part of the Her Insight Network on Toginet.com. The American Rock and Roll Countdown. Welcome back to Author Talk, brought to you by Authorhouse. Helping authors publish, promote, and sell their books around the world. The title of
1: the book, Petey's Tale, a story of survival inspired by actual events. This is a children's story, and the author is Deborah Bruno. And Deborah joins us now on Author Talk. Hello, Deborah.
3: Hello,
4: Steve. How are you
1: today? Well, I'm going to read your introduction. Uh, You have written this uh, just as an overview for the story. You say this is a heartwarming story based in part on actual events of a lost dog trying to find his way home. The story is one of determination, love, survival, and lessons learned. Well, there's certainly a lot of reasons to write a children's story, Deborah. Why did you write this one?
4: Well, uh, Steve, I was just... So inspired by uh, my little dog Petey um, and the story that I was told about how he was found as a stray on the streets of uh, uh, Northern California and um, I just wanted to share the story in the form of a children's book and uh, as part of that to deliver a couple of messages to children's children and their parents alike.
1: So you have a message to children that uh, is pretty straightforward about how they need to act toward their parents.
4: Oh, yes. Yeah, first, um, first, I, I just hope that the children uh, who have access to it really, really love it and, and read it over and over again. Uh, but as, uh, as they hear the story, uh, the message is very loud and clear that uh, you really should be obe- obeying your parents and... Um, if you want to avoid going through the troubles that Petey went through in this little story, uh, you better stay close to home and listen to your mom and dad. So, yeah, I think for adults, it, it might also underscore uh, the need to uh, rescue animals as opposed to purchasing animals. There are a wonderful variety of animals available for adoption in, in, in all cities.
1: What age group of children are we talking about for, for this book?
4: Well, it it it's um still under discussion but we're we're nailing down uh, 6, 7 and 8 year olds that really get uh attached to the story, attached to the dog and really understand uh what what it's all about. We've read it to 5 year olds as well and they seem to be in, engaged in in the story uh as well.
1: And it also rhymes.
4: Yeah, it's a little whimsical rhyme. Um, I, I, from my own experience, I, um, have found that children get more engaged when, uh, when they, when they can along with the story. So, so that's why I chose to do the rhyming.
1: Yeah. So I'll share a little bit of this. Uh, this is my story. It's called Petey's Tale. I knew I should tell it when I was in jail. Well, not quite a jail, more like a cage. I'll tell you my story when you turn the page. <laughs> so it's a real cute yeah. rhyme, and it rhymes yep. and children like rhyme they they are you know they're drawn toward rhyme
4: exactly and and so that was the uh the reason for putting it together the way i did um yeah, I've been told with children's books too, you've got to come right out of the gate and grab their attention, and so I think I've managed to accomplish that
1: and it's also illustrated very colorfully uh some great illustrations.
4: Yes, the illustrator did a fabulous, fabulous job. Uh, she absolutely nailed Petey <laughs> and his expressions, and uh, I was very, very pleased with how, how the illustrations uh, came, came, came about in their final form. They're really just fabulous. I think uh, any kid is kind of loved looking at these pictures.
1: Yeah, what kind of dog is Petey? is a cute, cute dog.
4: He is a cute dog. Uh, what kind of dog? Well, <laughs> they tell me he's a um, a multi generational mutt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but he's got a little ter—what <laughs> is it? A terrier look? Little terrier? Or? He,
4: yes, he does. He does have some border terrier and uh, and dachshund.
1: Oh, well. okay, dachshund as well. Now you yeah. also you you also have a website.
4: Yes, I do. Um, My website is called Poundtails.com, and uh, anyone who's interested can either go to Poundtails.com or or AuthorHouse.com and purchase a copy.
1: Now, Poundtails, it's with an S. It sounds like there's going to be some more (laughs) tales.
4: Yes, there is another one, as a matter of fact, uh, that, that I've written. And uh, it has not been published yet, but um, we're going to put that in the coming soon category. Uh, That will be called Peep to the Rescue. Uh, And again, we're going to really hone in on uh, the importance of animal rescue.
1: Pound Tails.
4: Pound Tails. P O U N D T A L E S.
1: Very good, yes. We wanted to make sure people knew how to spell it here's another little part of the story when i awoke i started to roam turning left then right just looking for home it was then he caught me the dog catcher did he struggled to put me in his truck with a lid <laughs> very cute very very well done you you talk about this being a story of determination love survival and lessons learned
4: yes yes i do um You know, when I adopted Petey uh, a couple of years back, uh, I arrived at the uh, animal shelter and uh, after having seen him on a local TV, uh, just as the story goes, there's a lot of truth in this story, um, and uh, they had told me that Petey had been picked up uh, about 30 days prior and uh, had not been put up for adoption because he was uh, extremely malnourished. They had estimated him to be astray for approximately 30 days. And so uh, I tried to imagine this tiny little dog uh, running around on the streets and and, and surviving, you know, managed to survive. And um, he got lucky the day they picked him up and brought him to the the, uh, rescue center. And I got lucky the day I happened to be watching TV and saw his ad for adoption.
1: That must have been quite a sight when you saw him on TV.
4: I, I said, that's that's a dog for me. and uh, I got in my car, and I drove about 90 minutes away and uh, got to the rescue center and found out he had been uh, adopted by somebody else, but that she needed uh, permission from her husband before she could go forward with the adoption. And she did not get that permission. So oh, my
1: goodness. I she went thinking, through some trauma, was, didn't she? Some trauma.
4: Oh, yeah, yeah, but you know what, Steve, it was meant to be. We were meant to be
1: together, so. <laughs> so you knew right away when you saw him on TV. That's Petey. That's mine, yeah,
4: that's my dog. i
1: got to go get him. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Well, again, yeah. everyone, you can go to poundtails.com. That's Deborah's website, and learn all about Petey's tail and also uh, maybe some little bit of information about some upcoming stories as well there is that true
4: yes that's true um as i said i've got another uh a book written called Pete to the rescue and uh, that'll be coming out um, within the next few months
1: sounds like Pete could do a lot of things couldn't he
4: yes he sure could <laughs> <laughs> most importantly the joy He's just a joy
1: well deborah how do we get your book
4: Well, you can get my book uh, by going to my website uh, or you can go to the authorhouse.com website. You can go to uh, barnesandnoble.com, borders.com, and amazon.com. So it's widely distributed and uh, it is print on demand. So take about seven to ten days for them to print the book after you place your order uh, and then you will receive it in the mail.
1: Well thank you very much, Deborah, for being on Author Talk.
4: It's been my pleasure and thank you for having me.
1: That was Deborah Bruno. She is the author of her children's book, Petey's Tale, a story of survival inspired by actual events.